2: Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins.
0: And I'm Aswin Tsubtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on
2: plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our
0: politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Kelly Weil, do you realize that we are now approaching the one year, the actual full year anniversary of the fever dreams podcast
1: it feels like we just started and also that this has been part of our daily lives for uh, about a decade
0: right exactly you're describing the emotional sensation you get when you have children and this podcast (laughs) no offense to our actual children is kind of like our children
1: absolutely about equally demanding i would say
0: Right. Just so our listeners know, for those interested, on Wednesday, March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, we will be hosting a Twitter Spaces to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Fever Dreams. Our producer, Jesse Cannon, will be joining us, among others. And who knows, maybe we'll even conscript uh, this guy named Will Summer to come join in on it. I think he was a part of something that had to do with our podcast at one point in time. Who knows?
1: I do recognize the name. It'll be fun. It will be like a live show, except people can hear how often we break into weird digressions about old TV and movies I've never seen. So have you ever done a Twitter spaces before, Kelly? I showed up in one. And because I was a blue check, people made me speak, which was really uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm like, I didn't prepare remarks. Um. But no, they're fun. They're rad. It's um, it's just a nice informal way of hanging out and shooting the shit, really, with people who are interested in the same kind of things that we are.
0: I shouldn't be admitting this. I don't actually know what Twitter Spaces is yet. I need to find its Wikipedia page or its Wikipedia tab <laughs> and do my research before I actually uh, do it later this month. I might understand it's like Clubhouse, but on Twitter.
1: It's like Clubhouse, except there are maybe like eight percent fewer um, NFT bros.
0: Does Clubhouse even still exist? Remember that?
1: I do remember that. I remember that that was going to be the future. And I I got an invitation and I signed up early and all that kept happening is I got notifications from people who are accidentally recording from their pockets. So I'd hear people like walking around and making dinner. And I said, mm, this app isn't quite for me, but we're going to do more organized is way Twitter Spaces. It's way cooler. <laughs> way
0: cooler. You're not here to discourage anybody from attending. So once again, Wednesday, March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern time sharp. Join us for the Fever Dreams Twitter Spaces at Twitter.com. We would love to see you there or hear you there is probably the correct nomenclature here. Anyway, we're really pumped about it. For all of our, I guess I would call them longtime listeners at this point, thank you for sticking with us for the past year. Unironically, it's been an honor. Speaking of social media, Kelly Weil, do you even remember that there was this thing called Truth Social? Apparently it still exists, and do you even recall what I'm talking about right now?
1: You know, so in the uh, in the goldfish memory of my brain right now with the current news cycle, no, I need something to you know, keep being active for me to remember. And this is not the case with Truth Social.
0: Well, for our listeners who also may have somewhat forgotten, this was supposed to be Donald Trump's big social media empire. This was his his version of Twitter that he spent a long time building up and hyping up and launching. And this wasn't just something that he kind of threw together with scotch tape and was like, okay, I'm Donald Trump, so you MAGA fans are going to pay attention to it now, and we're going to get a couple of articles written in The Watching Post about it, and then move on. No. I mean, this was something that partnered with Rumble, which is... I guess, its own kind of Canadian right-wing hard-right version of YouTube. But Rumble is actually something that has an actual audience and user base, so it's not nothing. Uh, This is something that, of course, had Trump's backing, and it was an alleged social media company that he founded, and it was publicly announced that it had this behemoth of money behind it. Again, this was supposed to be The thing from to stick his thumb in the eye of the allegedly liberal Silicon Valley that had dicked him over so much over the years, climaxing with his banning from uh, things like Twitter.com. This was not supposed to be Mike Lindell's frank speech website or (laughs) like kind of WordPress looking thing. Part deux. It was not supposed to be that. Kelly, have you been tracking how it's been shaping out over the past number of weeks since its allegedly soft launch?
1: So... Full disclosure here, I tried to get in at the soft launch and it crashed so many times I said I have to go and do other tasks. People who did get in on the soft launch got added to a apparently hundreds or tens of thousands long wait list. And Some of them are still on what claims to be a waitlist, and some of them have got in.
0: Uh, Allegedly, this MAGA waitlist is the hottest club in town, but you can't do anything.
1: (laughs) Right. And for those who actually do get into the hottest club, it's pretty dead in there. You know, what strikes me is that Trump is a poster by nature. He is just—you cannot make the man stop tweeting unless you actually take away his Twitter account, and he's just not using this site. It's (laughs) like— In that, if anything, is the real indictment of truthsocial.com. If you cannot even get Trump hasn't been using it. <laughs> Right. Right. If you can't get him on there spouting off about, uh, you know, election fraud or also, you know, why he thinks Rob Pattinson should break up with Kristen Stewart. That's a real failure of a social media site in my eyes.
0: Okay, so uh, I'm going to read quickly from some uh, reporting we've been doing recently on Truth Social. It's kind of a an ongoing fascination of mine how much of a dud this is. And again, When we've been doing this reporting, we were being as fair as possible and factoring in that this is supposed to be a, quote unquote, soft launch. Even for a soft launch, it is remarkably flaccid. Okay, here we go. As Trump weighs another run for the White House, the twice impeached former president has made a point of embarking on new business opportunities to increase his wealth and maintain his personal brand. But unfortunately for Trump, one of his most heavily promoted ventures, Truth Social, is currently looking less like a success and more like an embarrassing dud. Even for a soft launch, Truth Social's launch has been particularly soft. And after a botched rollout where most prospective users were simply added to a waitlist, Trump has been grumbling about the app behind the scenes, according to two people familiar with the matter, even as he's tried to put on a brave face publicly. In recent weeks, sources have heard the former president on the phone swearing gratuitously and asking things like, what the fuck is going on? with Truth Social. (laughs) He's repeatedly groused about the negative press and less than stellar optics of the rollout, these sources said. And he's demanded to know why more people aren't using it and why the app isn't swiftly dominating the competition.
1: You know, we were just talking 30 seconds ago about how Clubhouse failed because it really did not have a very engaged user base the people who are using it seem to be recording from their pockets and had no idea what was going on literally posting from their asses that's <laughs> kind of what's going on here no one wants to use this website and you cannot will that into existence even if you were previously one of the most um prolific posters in the world
0: he can't even get the gigantic hordes of anime nazis who love him <laughs> and who love trumpism <laughs> and love maga to flock to this thing in necessary numbers at this time. It's fascinating. And speaking of which, I want to continue quoting from this because it gets into the nitty-gritty of the numbers, some of which are non-public, that we were able to review for this story. The Daily Beast reviewed analyses of visits to Truth Social performed by SimilarWeb, which tracks website traffic from public and private sources. The company's figures for the MAGA social media network are nonetheless anemic. Trump's own social media platform is doing either worse or the same as other MAGA social sites like Gab, another pro-Trump competitor website that's especially beloved by Nazis. And it's also doing either worse or the same as Getter, a platform fronted by one of Trump's former top political aides, Jason Miller.
1: Okay, so I don't know if people like fully understand what it means to be doing worse than gab (laughs) gab is an early kind of twitter facebook knockoff it fundamentally does not work it's like using some kind of like web 1.0 website that you have to use with like a rotary crank or something it's just a fundamentally broken site run by uh, christian fascists and To do the same or worse than Gab with the enormous fundraising that Truth Social got, the enormous uh, investment that it had up front, is just mind-blowing. It's like getting, you know, a, a billion VC dollars and, you know, not outpacing a lemonade stand down the street. Right. And even
0: factoring in the soft launch, even factoring in the wait list, this is how the two of them have compared recently when you get down to the nitty-gritty of the numbers. Uh, similar web's estimates show a sharp spike of around 2 million daily visits to Truth Social when it first debuted. However, traffic dipped to an average of approximately 300k visits each day, putting the site on par with Getter. Meanwhile, Gab has averaged around 650,000 daily average v- visits in the same time period
1: swing can i say something really cruel here like you and i routinely write articles that get more ah! than that like not to be awful uh, i know traffic isn't everything but come on
0: right he's getting his ass handed to him by just nazis right now <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's again maybe he would be doing himself a favor if he actually used a thing but it kind of seems like he's lost interest in this gigantic venture of his already, which would not be the most unusually Trumpian thing for him to do. He has like a lengthy, lengthy track record uh, before his presidency during his presidency obviously now after his presidency of just like diving in feet first or hands first into these get rich quick schemes or different kind of bright ideas or things he thinks are bright ideas and then losing interest in them very quickly once it seems like it's going south or once he doesn't have uh, much entertainment value in it anymore
1: he, he's an adhd ally
0: at the core of it like that attention deficit is kind of the core or at least one of the cores of his political ideology or whatever political ideology there is invested in Trumpism, but also like how he has run his business empire for decades.
1: (laughs) That's right. I mean, we have so many failed Trump products that you almost have to overlook them. There's Trump States and there's Trump, you know, university. And part of his business model is just throwing so many things at the wall and hoping that they're enough to distract from past failures. And that's kind of what this app is starting to look like now.
0: Right. And the, the, the cool or not so cool thing about Trump actually being president for a period of time is that he got to apply that same mentality to actual national and foreign policy. Uh, One of them being, do you remember when he actually was considering for a period of time militarily attacking Venezuela because because Maduro made him mad?
1: To your point, (laughs) I had completely forgotten that.
0: (laughs) But he abandoned it. He abandoned it. He moved on to his next thing. It was the Trump stakes Of that period of the trump administration except there would have been a massive (laughs) body count to it instead of horrible sharper image stakes speaking of which we have to play the ad of trump stakes it is one of my favorite relics of trump's (laughs) business life during his apprentice days and before he entered the white house i've just raised the stakes Trump stakes are the world's greatest stakes and i mean that in every sense of the word Trump steaks are by far the best-tasting, most flavorful beef you've ever had, truly in a league of their own. Until now, you could only enjoy steaks of this quality in one of my resort restaurants or America's finest steakhouses, but now that's changed. And believe me, I understand steaks. It's
1: my favorite food, and these are the best.
0: Kelly, did you... (laughs) I, I, I know the answer is no, but did you ever order or try a Trump steak?
1: No, I avoid steak and also the sharper image.
0: Ah, uh, so no. I do regret that I haven't been able to track one down and actually try it.
1: You know, I feel like if you if you got one today, it would probably be in comparable condition to when they stopped selling them when in like 2005, maybe.
0: <laughs> okay, Kelly, we got to move on to something a little bit more serious than Trump steaks. Um, I want to ask you right now about uh, Ukraine, bio labs, and the brain rot that is pervading this. Yeah, I don't even know if I want to call it a discussion, but get me up to speed on what's going on.
1: Sure. So uh, you might have been following, but there is a war on and supporters of the invasion are accusing their enemies of having weapons of mass destruction, despite a total lack of evidence.
0: Of course, of course. Uh, sounds familiar.
1: It does. Would you believe that this is not 2003 in Iraq, but 2022 in Ukraine, where an unholy alliance of Kremlin-controlled media outlets and far-right American wackos are spreading what might be the most insidious conspiracy theory yet in Russia's invasion. This theory, for lack of a proper euphemism there, it falsely accuses Ukraine of preparing to loose COVID or similar pathogens on the world with help from American figures like Dr. Anthony Fauci. Of course. This, yeah. This is exactly as bullshit as it sounds. And not even Russia thought to run with this theory when they first announced their invasion of Ukraine last month. But now that theory has picked up momentum stateside.
0: That is the amazing part of it. The invasion already happened. At least American authorities and, intellig- and, and, and Bush administration officials had the kind of amoral version of decency. They at least had the courtesy to start with the WMD bullshit before the invasion was launched
1: absolutely and you know it really does show how russia and it's you know apologists in the u.s are throwing every justification they can at the wall for this invasion first they're saying that we've got to denazify ukraine a a country with a jewish president and that didn't work because nobody in their right mind believed that so now they're like uh the bioweapons and What is so just like mind-blowingly cynical is how this conspiracy theory has actually picked up momentum in the U.S. It's being promoted by all the usual suspects, your Tucker Carlson, your Tulsi Gabbards. And now that it seems to uh, stick here a little bit, it's also being promoted by official Russian government accounts on social media.
0: Let me uh, throw out a wild guess here. There is a clear, distinct through line between this and QAnon world.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: ah, ding, 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 ding. There you go.
1: It's, uh, yeah, that's usually a safe bet these days. And this conspiracy theory is actually straight out of QAnon world. As our uh, friend and former colleague Ben Collins of MSNBC reported, some of the earliest instances of this Ukraine conspiracy theory come from a popular QAnon account, after which it's, no, Would you believe it? And then after this guy started posting, it spread to MAGA sites like The Great Awakening and Patriots.Win, The Donald, et cetera. These, uh, these charming forums where you can uh, absolutely turn for uh, true information on you know, bioweapon. But I think this is actually very useful for this fringe of the far right because they've been very uncomfortable opposing Putin for the past. Two and a half weeks. They admire him. He is what they envision a strong man to be, and they've been looking for a reason not to like Ukraine and to justify this invasion. And this conspiracy theory, which hits all the sweet spots of uh, Fauci and bio labs, it lets them return pretty comfortably to Putin apologia.
0: Okay, I'm not trying to make that much sense or uh, try to graph too much logic onto any of this, but. The people who are really pushing this conspiracy theory hard, what did they think Ukraine was trying to do with? these supposed bioweapons like attack moscow
1: with them like what (laughs) it it seems like a very like marvel villain plot that they're alleging where they're just gonna you know release release the new covid you know these theories don't necessarily make much sense these days It's this is kind of a recycled version of the uh, china created covid in a lab to do bio warfare (laughs) on the world it doesn't make any goddamn sense right
0: but it's not even China where it's it's this massive world power. This is Ukraine. It's not even Iraq, which uh, where Saddam Hussein was like an enemy number one or number two or number three of the United States and other world leaders for a long time prior to 2003. This is more akin to H.W. Bush coming out there and saying, well, we got to invade Panama because Noriega... <laughs> he's got the thanos weapon and he's going to use it against washington dc if we don't invade right now let's go get him
1: it's wild because you know most of these people could not have found ukraine on a map before this invasion happened and these justifications are just becoming more and more spurious like there's no reason a country would engage in just you know war against the world literally except when you get into this kind of brain fried conspiracy narrative where uh, it's not really about Ukraine, it's about U.S. control of the world because they need to connect this Ukrainian conspiracy theory to Democrats in the U.S. that they don't like. So they'll say that, you know, Biden is somehow involved, that Fauci is somehow involved. And it really does become, I'm sorry, but this comic book narrative of really just pure evil and unexamined malice. And it's so utterly cynical to use that kind of narrative when people in Ukraine are being slaughtered right now. It's it's, it's just a complete disconnect from reality. When it's the real reality is very grim.
0: These conspiracy theory and pro-Trump websites would have probably been better off just calling Zelensky a witch.
1: Yeah, the, you know, that's. I think we should get back to some witch narratives. Let's, you know, let's get some witches, let's get some druids.
0: uh. (laughs) Right. Zelensky is practicing witchcraft. We need to invade pronto. There is more of a logical consistency to that than trying to cramming Dr. Flashy COVID and these fictitious WMD threats into a single narrative. It's
1: fascinating. It's conspiracy theory, Mad Libs, right? If you get COVID Fauci Ukraine into a yummy little headline, everyone is really, really happy. You know, it's it's um it it ticks all the SEO boxes. And so they've found that right combination, it seems like they've found the combination of keywords that might propel this into a broader narrative. And you know, one other thing that I just want to touch on here is throughout the pandemic, we've seen these online conspiracy networks um, appear and mobilize around something like ivermectin. And when that falls out of favor, they reinvent themselves for whatever else is in the news. Now we've got ivermectin chills promoting the trucker convoy. And when the trucker convoy falls out of the news, I'm sure they'll do something else. That's what's happening here. We have QAnon accounts suddenly experts in bioweapons and getting pickup from Tucker Carlson.
0: Right. There are these people examining something that is more innocuous than it sounds or trying to take a data point and blow it up into Zelensky was the next Saddam Hussein, except he actually was going to have WMD. It's completely nonsensical. But having said that, uh, the whataboutism brigade really has latched onto this, as you were alluding to before. In the form of, I am just asking questions. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, every time one of these conspiracy narratives pops up, be it ivermectin, be it Ukrainian bio labs, there's the immediate group of people who are promoting the conspiracy theory as if it's fact. And then there's this whole weird attendant, like substat grifter economy that won't always come out and support the conspiracy theory but says that why aren't we allowed to ask questions why aren't we allowed to question
0: you got to know your audience
1: absolutely and so they leverage this really cynical and really false talking point into some broader debate about like censorship as if you're not allowed to talk about this conspiracy theory because it's being blasted out on prime time fox news That's not censorship that is pure amplification of what is now a Kremlin talking point.
0: What are a couple of top examples or one prominent example of like a person who is actually doing this right now?
1: Oh, I mean, this is, you know, Glenn Greenwald has hopped on this. Tucker, of course, has hopped on this. All these uh, right wing mouthpieces who sometimes have like a a veneer of populism. And so when you can start bringing in um, these keywords, you know, Fauci, Biden, It lets people recenter what is an ongoing crisis in Ukraine to something that's about them personally. It's really about the U.S., guys. And yeah, it's a very, at this point, recognizable tactic. And it is so frustrating to see it lobbied here again.
0: Right. Unless you're a completely deranged, bloodthirsty cynic or a grifter or something in that sphere, it is incredibly easy to be a principled anti-war, non-interventionist, someone who doesn't want to risk starting World War III and not fall into this trap of functionally doing the Putin regime's work for it. It is very easy to not do that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And so many of these people are the ones who call themselves non-interventionists and, you know, anti-imperialists over the years. And what exactly does that have to do with justifying war in Ukraine.
0: Right. And I'm not talking about anybody being treasonous or a traitor or any, or any bullshit like that. I'm talking about people just being relentlessly, astoundingly dumb, either unintentionally or willfully. Like, it, it's very easy to be a non-interventionist and anti-war and do it in a very consistent and humane way. This garbage is just like, are you just trying to make a buck for yourself or are you just that fucking dumb and will buy anything that the Kremlin will will like kind of flirt with
1: obviously there's some kind of money in it people know their audiences and they know what is going to sell in a moment like this and i think that's enough for some people okay uh moving on swin who is our guest this week
0: today uh we're really happy to welcome a fresh-faced newcomer to the pod his name is cj charamela a reporter at Reason Magazine, the libertarian politics and culture magazine most famous and nationally recognized for being the magazine where my wife works. CJ is going to give us a glimpse into how the so-called deep state actually operates. Stick around. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
2: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing.
0: We are now joined by C.J. Cheramella, a criminal justice reporter at Reason Magazine. C.J. has previously served as a politics editor at BuzzFeed and has written and reported for such outlets as Vanity Fair, Vice, The Washington Free Beacon, Salon, and The Washington Post. He's one of the best journalists working today covering the vast array of abuses carried out by law enforcement and the federal government and is one of our profession's most seasoned practitioners of firing off Freedom of Information Act request after Freedom of Information Act request in order to peel off layer after layer of government and police secrecy. You should follow him on Twitter.com at CJ and you can check out his reporting at Reason.com. CJ Welcome to Fever Dreams. How is it going down in Florida? Is that correct?
3: Uh, yes, it's uh, it's going well down here. Our state legislature didn't do anything about skyrocketing property insurance, but they did have a lot of time to address, uh, you know, hot topic cultural issues so everything's going swell thanks for having me on i'm super excited
0: thank you for being here what what cultural war issue of the day or the hour are they addressing right now is it critical race theory is it gay teacher seminars a little bit of column a a little bit of column b oh yeah
3: all of the above all the above it's all on the table the the session just wrapped up though so they uh Now they're going back to doing nothing, which is their preferred state.
1: Yeah, you've got (laughs) to prioritize self-care, rest and relax in between criminalizing gay teenagers.
0: That's right. Yeah, it takes some time for you. (laughs) Right. And before we get into your reporting, uh, just so our listeners get a better taste of who you are as an individual, I want to read from uh, something that Reason Magazine put out in which they had their staffers talk about who they were going to vote for for the upcoming election this is something reason regularly does and this was ahead of the uh 2020 presidential election and the question was who do you plan to vote for this year and your response was joe biden the nationalists said the libertarian conservative consensus is dead and i take them at their word also stephen miller is a white nationalist
3: (laughs) (laughs) I was maybe feeling a little spicy that day. But, you know, uh, I I don't, you know, when I did that, I was like, man, because I don't usually vote. I know people are going to get mad at me when I say this, but I don't, I usually don't vote in presidential elections because I really dislike the candidates and don't think it's really worth taking my time to give my stamp of moral approval to someone running for president. Uh, I was worried that was going to come back and make me look really foolish, but the events of november through january really uh i I don't really have a lot of regrets considering what happened post-election so yeah i i uh, i was worried that i was going to be embarrassed by that but really i don't feel too embarrassed uh in retrospect
1: so cj you report on cops and frequently their abuses of power And I was wondering how you got into this beat and how long you've been pursuing this.
3: I've always had sort of a a libertarian bent in college. I started writing for a nominally libertarian magazine, which was basically just meant that, you know, we were a little bit to the right of the prevailing, uh, you know, uh, campus atmosphere. But when I started doing that, I started reading Reason Magazine. I started reading specifically uh, Radley Belco, who now does a lot of freelance for The Intercept and still writes uh, for The Washington Post occasionally. But he really heavily covered police abuses. And I started reading that and getting very interested in the subject because police and prisons are the area where um, the government has the most power over you as a person. You know, the, a police officer has the lawful authority to use physical force, including deadly force. And you know, that, that that's one of the extreme powers that we grant the government, is you can be walking down the street and a police officer can stop you and detain you. And if you resist,
0: they can throw you on the ground and tase you and- These are authorities that we don't even give the President of the United States. Right. Like, like, yeah.
1: like, I think if Biden can tackle you, he should be allowed to.
0: <laughs> right. If, if Biden can catch you, then
3: you deserve <laughs> it. That's, that's <laughs> But yeah, so it, it's this its the most is extreme power that we give the government over our everyday lives. And so I think it deserves a lot of accountability. You know, I don't do this because I'm a, I didn't get into it because I'm a cop hater. I do it because I think that they deserve the same amount of scrutiny and accountability that we expect from all of our other institutions like, uh, you know, the media or Congress or, you know, or state legislatures or anything like that. We don't expect them to always be good guys. And cops are people, too. And I I think they should have the same amount of scrutiny.
0: You also do a good amount of work covering the feds. I want to read from a story that you put up earlier this month at Reason. And the headline is the FBI is hiding an unpublished police use of data." base from FOIA requesters. Uh, Three years since it launched, an FBI data collection program on police use of force incidents has yet to gain enough participation to release any statistics. Uh, Tell our listeners about what this all means and why it's important.
3: After the Michael Brown killing, the police killing of Michael Brown in 2014 in Ferguson, a lot of news outlets, you know, started looking into and trying to figure out, well, how often do police actually kill people? Which sounds like It should, on its face, be a fairly uh, easy question to answer, but what they found out was that the government doesn't actually track anything like that. They, They didn't have any reliable database of how often police use deadly force and how often police are killed, or how often people are killed by police. The FBI and Justice Department kept a couple of data sets that included some information, but it was mainly uh, voluntary stuff that police departments submitted and it wasn't complete. What, what news outlets found was that uh, the FBI and DOJ were undercounting the number of fatal poli- or of police killings by about half. They were reporting about 400 or so when the actual number was about 900 to 1,000. And the Washington Post and the Guardian and some other groups started building their own databases to track fatal police shootings. And the Justice Department sort of had egg on its face. It was a little bit embarrassed by all this. So the Obama administration announced an initiative to start a police use of force database based on information submitted by police departments.
0: And just to be clear, this would cover all police killings, both unjustified and what we could reasonably call a justified shooting or killing, like a good shoot, correct?
3: Right. Yeah, yeah. So police do justifiably kill people sometimes in self-defense and, and protecting other people, and that would be included too. And that's part of why researchers wanted to see this and, and why news outlets wanted to get us information was to um, try and unpack the narrative that police are killing minorities at an outsized rate and see if those claims held up to scrutiny. So the only way you do that is by looking at all these uh, homicides, justified and unjustified. But the program actually launched the new database collection effort launched in 2019. The issue with it has been that the FBI can't force police departments to participate. You know, they don't have the legal authority to say, you must give us this data. So it's voluntary.
0: Which I think would blow the minds of a layman that the government isn't allowed to be like, oh, you need to show us how many people you're killing. (laughs) Right. That seems like something that the federal government should be allowed to do on on its face.
3: Yeah. And this is the issue that also came up with police reform efforts post George Floyd is that the federal government actually does not have a lot of authority to tell state and local law enforcement how to go about their business. And this is the nature of federalism. State and local police sort of have their own discretion to set their own policies and, you know, collect their own data and do what they want with it. So participation in the FBI program has never been really robust. The problem I ran into is that the Office of Management and Budget set this uh, sort of arbitrary goal of hitting 60% participation before it, it could release any data, which is, is, is good in some senses because you don't want to release a national database that includes less than half of the people you're trying to track, right? You want the data to be... To be reliable and actually a representative of what we're trying to show. What that means is in the three years since it launched, the FBI has not published any statistics or released any of its raw data that it has collected from police agencies. Uh, it's just sitting around. And the office and the government accountability office uh, recently said that, you know, if it doesn't reaches 60% participation goal, it might just shut the database down entirely and not release anything.
0: Right. And you report that a civil rights group is uh, essentially accusing the Department of Justice and the FBI of stonewalling uh, these attempts to get the underlying reports submitted uh, to the program. I mean, one reason we want to have you on this week is because we obviously spend a lot of time on this podcast dissecting and taking apart, and in many cases, mocking the way that a lot of MAGA shitheads and prominent conspiracy theorists or Trumpists go about accusing the so-called deep state and the DOJ and FBI of all these abuses, much of their claims being absolutely fictitious or or just too stupid to take seriously, but unfortunately millions of people already do. Uh, It really betrays their lack of imagination that they're not even able to focus on the actual real-world scary shit that the so-called deep state is doing oftentimes right in front of us and before our eyes you specialize in looking at okay what are these fuckers actually doing
3: <laughs> yeah and that's, so yeah that's what we're dealing with here is the leadership conference on civil and human rights has been trying to FOIA this data and the justice department and fbi is basically saying like no it would be too burdensome and you haven't reasonably described what you're looking for and so they're just sitting on this massive trove of data that that probably has you know, thousands of data points on police use of force in departments across the country. You know, there are some databases, uh, nonprofits that are trying to track this, but it would have nothing like the amount of data that the FBI is currently sitting on. Uh, and if it just, if this program goes away without any of it coming to light, it would be a, a gigantic loss for these efforts to actually find out how police are operating in some of these jurisdictions. And so this is this is actually a pretty important issue for trying to better understand the police. Both if you're you know a Black Lives Matter activist, or a researcher, or you honestly think that like the police are getting smeared uh, unfairly, this should be something that you should be concerned about.
1: So CJ, you're describing on one hand a database that they say they can't release because it's just insufficient, but you also get at this frustration where you file FOIA requests and law enforcement can basically just say no. Can you explain kind of some of the barriers to getting what should be public information when you're reporting on police and other law enforcement?
3: In the United States, we have the Freedom of Information Act at the federal level, and all 50 states uh, have their own analogs of the Freedom of Information Act. And it allows you to request government information. And ostensibly, you have a presumptive right to see these records. But there's the exemptions that are sort of baked in for things like law enforcement records. And states have varying levels of willingness to release some of that stuff. New York uh, was notorious until about 2021, until last year, for not releasing any police disciplinary records. You cannot see how often a police officer in New York had been accused or even found to have abused his or her power. And California had similarly strict laws up until a couple of years ago. It's very hard because of the exemptions that have been expanded and created through the advocacy of police unions to shield their records from disclosure. And that's, that's a major obstacle to understanding how police work. And has been one of the real challenges of reporting on police nationally and locally across the country for reporters is getting access to internal police records showing misconduct. Florida actually has pretty robust laws. I can put in a public records request for any officer and see all the complaints made against them and see the summaries of the internal investigations.
0: It's a great irony of Florida being this uh, resplendently blue lives matter state. And yet (laughs) it, it is much easier to sort of bust that information out, or at least some of it morsels of it that you're talking about than it is in like a bastion of, uh, I guess, mainstream liberalism like California.
3: Yeah, it's Florida's public records law is very good on paper, although it does have its problems. It is. It's one of the interesting things. This is probably the reason for the um, phenomena of the Florida man is that we have really good public records laws, So you can get the mugshots and the arrest reports anytime some guy <laughs> goes into like <laughs> Anytime, so some guy goes into like a Winn-Dixie with an alligator under
0: his arm. <laughs> While being naked, of course. While well, naked, of course.
3: I mean, that's assumed.
0: <laughs> Something else I want to get in with you that uh, has kind of been a, a fixation or a fascination uh, uh, of ours on this podcast is the conspiracy theories about around FBI informants who were uh, there during the January 6th riot. Obviously, there are conservative and right-wing heavy hitters like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson, the list goes on and on and on and on, who would like to say, ah, this is evidence or supposed proof of how the FBI did January 6th as a false flag. I don't know, to make Donald Trump look bad, some conspiracy theory or conspiracy theories horrifically stupid like that. But you have written and reported quite a bit about how, when we're talking about FBI informants. All of these guys are obviously asking the wrong questions about how shittily the FBI does have a track record of basically abusing their informants and how they treat them. Stepping away from the ADC that we were talking about just a moment earlier, can you get into the reporting you've done about what it actually looks like when you are an FBI informant?
3: Right. So it's sort of funny that post-January 6th, you suddenly saw a lot of conservative Echoing these sort of things you would have heard radical leftists saying in like the lead up to the Iraq war or defense lawyers for accused terrorists saying uh, in the mid 2000s, which is that the FBI is basically concocting or manufacturing plots and then roping people into them. And it is pretty much the way it the way it has worked since post 9-11. The FBI has a huge network of informants and undercover agents that have infiltrated and done anti-terrorism work. Basically, if you are a member of any group that has politics more radical than calling for writing a letter to your local representative, (laughs) there's a pretty good chance that an FBI informant is somewhere close to you. What we saw, though, is that this massive spy network, like I said, they... The, the criticisms are that they manufacture these plots and then rope people into participating. The, the sort of archetype, uh, or the, the like, archetypal case of this is where the FBI finds some loner on like a, a radical Islamic forum, and it, some guy posts something like, "Gosh, I'd really like to blow up a bridge." So they send an informant out to sort of befriend him, get his confidence, and say, "Well, you know, I know a guy who can sell you a bomb." Or like get you a bomb. And so they go give this guy who is in most cases, um, to put it indelicately, a loser. Um, they call them lone wolves. But like a lot of times these guys, you know, they're marginally employed or unemployed. Life hasn't really broken their way. They're filled with a lot of resentment. They're probably broke. And hands them this a nerd bomb and says, now go bomb the bridge. And then when they arrest them, they say, look, we foiled this gigantic terrorism plot that would have killed all these people. And the question that comes up in these cases is, you know, these people might have had the will to carry out something like this, but it's it's pretty questionable whether they actually had the means or the gumption. A lot of times these guys aren't the brightest bulbs in the bunch. An investigative journalist, Trevor Aronson, wrote a book uh, called The Terror Factory in 2013, where he looked at all of the post-9-11 terrorism prosecutions And he found about 150 of these sting operations. And in a lot of these cases, this this is what he was seeing, is that these guys, you know, they didn't have any actual, most of them didn't have any links to actual terrorism. They had very limited means to actually carry out a plot like this. The FBI was basically driving them around, putting them in contact, giving them spending cash and things like that. And this also extended to uh, radical environmentalists
0: you had a piece a few years ago uh, for vice.com i believe that dove into this am i correct yeah
3: there was there was a case where
0: uh like three radical environmentalists were
3: basically catfished by an 18 year old fbi informant who uh, the the one guy this guy named eric mcdavid he got nearly 20 years on his terrorism charge for plotting to blow up a bridge or a dam and some other uh and some other infrastructure. This 18-year-old informant, uh, this girl, her alias was Anna, basically drove them around in a bugged 96 Chevy Illumina. Um, they were staying at a cabin that was also supplied by the FBI out in the middle of the woods. She was handing out $100 bills of spending cash for them, and they were going out and basically casing places that they were talking. They had these like late-night bullshit sessions where they were talking about their plans to you know blow up a bridge and uh, start the revolution to end capitalism. And his conviction, he actually got out of prison because federal prosecutors later admitted that they withheld thousands of pages of FBI documents from his defense counsel, showing that Anna had been sort of leading him on romantically, you know, sending, they were exchanging sort of mushy notes.
0: Terroristic honey traps, basically. Yeah, it's, it's a classic. Well, less quick question i got for you before we let you get going is look since you uh covered this stuff extensively over the years this might be a little bit of a leading question but do you see any shred of evidence even a sort of contrarian piece of evidence to show that any of these people saying similar things about january 6th have a point i'm not asking you if you have any uh documentation that suggests fbi director christopher (laughs) ray blackmailed donald trump into saying now it's time to go to the capitol. <laughs> but I am asking you, does anybody have a shred or a ghost of a point when it comes to that riot?
3: Now, they haven't, the thing is like Darren Beady and the other sort of uh, real proponents of this haven't produced the smoking gun that they keep claiming to. There was an FBI inform at least one FBI informant in the crowd. He was embedded in the Proud Boys. Which, again, not a surprise, like I said, if you're in a mildly radical group, there's probably an FBI informant.
1: Including the Proud Boys' former leader is a former yeah. FBI informant or law enforcement informant.
3: Yeah, any in right-wing militia group is riddled with informants. But Beatty and these other guys have not produced a smoking gun showing that this was instigated by the FBI or that it was a false flag operation. It's just all they have are these sort of like dark insinuations and open questions and sort of like leading half evidence, we're like, oh well, he hasn't been in, this guy hasn't been indicted yet, so really makes you think, doesn't it? <laughs> so like, I'm willing to you know entertain the notion that there might have been a, you know an FBI undercover agent in that crowd or more informants, but until you know, I'm not going to entertain it further than that until they actually until these guys can either put up or shut up, basically.
1: Well. CJ, I think they might be waiting a long time, but I am following <laughs> your reporting on this and uh, we'll turn to you first if that smoking gun does emerge. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: Right. If that smoking gun does emerge, we're all blaming you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry
3: in advance. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure being
0: on. On this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, Kelly Weil, you have informed me that you want to dig into uh, one of your absolute favorite local Republican parties. This is for a county that, tell me how to pronounce this county's name right, and tell me a little bit more about the county.
1: So this is Kootenai County in Idaho. And with respect to the county, which seems like a very pretty place, it has probably the most. Off the rails, Republican Party in the country.
0: Well, before you get into that, I gotta be honest. I was just staring at how the name of the county is spelled. I thought this was like a Japanese video game brand.
1: There are some interesting spellings throughout. And so, you know, there are handy pronunciation guides online. And I hope I'm getting that right. But I'm sure if I got that wrong, somebody will send me an email setting me to rights.
0: Someone in the county will send you a cease and desist,
1: of course. Absolutely. I, I welcome it. My inbox is open. So let's go on a little digital road trip. The Kootenai County GOP is, um, is a breed of its own, really. And in recent years, it's done a number of headline-grabbing things, like it held a meeting to discuss why an Austrian neo-Nazi who was banned from entering the country should actually be allowed in with a special uh, treatment that other immigrants do not get.
0: They're trying to cancel the Austrian Nazis.
1: I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, you know, it is illuminating to say nothing else of who gets uh, certain considerations in the immigration discussion. And of course, it's not all they did. In 2021, this local GOP unanimously passed a resolution endorsing the John Birch Society, which is this far-right, decades-old, conspiratorial organization. They wrote that the John Birch Society is, quote, a valuable organization that is dedicated to restoring the republic, according to the vision of the Founding Fathers. This is an actual GOP. We don't
0: have time to do a deep dive on the John Birch Society right now, but we should consider doing a special episode just dedicated to them. They are like the OG of everything we're choking on now, whether it was Pizzagate or QAnon and everything else in between.
1: Yeah, that'll be that'll be fantastic. And just to like, you know, one aside on how um, not only, you know, conspiratorial, but also very petty this organization is. I wrote about them recently and had some throw out line like, oh, they're huge crusaders against fluoride in the water. And they sent me repeated emails being like, we are not. Or if we are, then it's very justified. And so, you know, this is not an entirely, um, completely well institution, but it's earned this local GOP's endorsement. And the reason I'm talking about the Kootenai County GOP again is that they have finally won up to themselves. There was reporting in the Coeur Press last week on a recorded phone call between a Kootenai County GOP leader and a supporter, in which they discussed plans to literally infiltrate and take over the corresponding Democratic Party in town, which is tiny, tiny. This is a very solidly Republican district. On the call, the Republican leader said, quote, long story short, we want to take over the Democrat Party. <laughs> and what? in this call, they go on to discuss how they're trying to get secret Republicans to enroll the Democratic Party as precinct committee leaders, which is usually this uncontested role that you you know don't have to stand for election for, to force a hostile takeover of the party and install a guy named Dave Riley as the new Democratic leader.
0: Okay, quick related aside: Did you ever watch uh, The West Wing back when Aaron Sorkin was writing it?
1: No, I'm sorry, Sven.
0: Bless you for <laughs> having not done that to yourself. Um, I did. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I actually used to like the show, but there's this episode where this Republican politician is lecturing one of the Democratic White House staffers about, you know, something I never understand about you liberals is why don't you join the NRA en masse? Because the next time a vote comes up on uh, on bylaws or guns, and then he snaps and he says, you change it just like that. Well, first of all, OK, the logic there is incredibly stupid and it wouldn't actually go anywhere or you would not be able to actually get the NRA to de- like denounce handguns or anything like that. But is that what they were trying to do here, but for the local Democratic Party and they were caught on an audio recording trying to do it?
1: Literally, yes. Yeah. The thing that we're discussing is too dumb to happen in the West Wing. They really tried it. And it's even worse than it sounds in that recording because I mentioned they wanted to install this guy named Dave Riley. And for those who mercifully don't know, Dave Riley is sort of like this F list anti Semitic troll. He recently ran for school board in the area, despite saying that he would never enroll children in public schools. He was uh, previously known for attending Unite the Right, which was that deadly. Uh, rally in Charlottesville in 2017. These days he's on Twitter promoting the Griper American First movement, uh, tweeting about how he doesn't like Jews and how women shouldn't be allowed to vote. And they said in this recorded phone call that they would have Riley take the Democrats' money and put it toward Republican causes. And it's like you know, in this episode, we keep talking about.
0: I need a citation there to see what they are defining as Republican causes.
1: Right. I'm sure. I'm sure it's just you know, it's uh, it's pro business initiatives. Uh, You know, maybe maybe some lack of regulation and you know, engineering. No. Uh,
0: Right. Right. Tax cuts, but not for Italians.
1: No, I mean, Dave Riley, he ran for school board on, you know, pretty much pure anti-CRT animus. These are all just euphemisms. It's a really kind of hollow platform right now. This is something I keep thinking about is, you know, this is a party with power locally. It could be doing something, but instead it's entirely grievance based. It's school board campaigns that are based around removing any reference to race or gender in schools. And in this case, in the case of this attempted takeover, it is an effort to subvert an absolutely tiny Democratic minority in town. What better use of their time do they have? Because this just seems like borderline cartoon, super villainy. It doesn't even make too much political sense unless your politics are pure vitriol.
0: What exactly? Like what could possibly be the practical real world benefit to you as a local um, Republican party? Like if you're talking about we need to take over the Democratic Party, there is a way to legitimately and commonly do that. You take They're voters. And you do that by winning over more people there. So they're voting for you, thus depriving of the Democratic Party of any actual power in the area. It seems like they've accomplished that based on what you're telling me here. And yet that's not good enough for them. They want to install a sock puppet regime so they have a controlled (laughs) opposition.
1: I mean, it's bizarre, right? And I think you only try this kind of stunt if you genuinely believe your own bullshit
0: and you're bored and you have nothing better to do
1: (laughs) right that too you really do believe that your political opponents are baby eaters or whatever um and you believe that you have some moral imperative to go charging in there although you know I can think of another way this shakes out, and this is my personal fan fiction, is that these guys like go undercover as Democratic operatives, and they um, they really do their research, and like six months later, they're full-on hardline Antifa, you know, black block. Um ah. and, You know, I think that is my desired resolution here. So in that respect, I think they should go for it.
0: Right. Suddenly they come out for abortions for all. <laughs> so- Wait a minute, how big is this county again? how many people reside within, I'm going to call it K-Town. No offense to K-Town, I'm sure it's a lovely, lovely place. I just, I I forget how to pronounce the name and I've never been there before. About
1: uh, 150,000, a little bit more than that. Okay,
0: so it's a decently sized county.
1: <laughs> right.
0: This is not a local Republican Party that is nothing. Th- this, like, this actually is representative of something and this is the direction they're heading in and not even heading in this is where they are now
1: right and you know here's the thing going on in in idaho and especially this part of idaho is there is a current far-right valorization of idaho as this perfect conservative utopia and it's really and so people are moving there en masse to um, establish themselves and to network with other new Idaho transplants, and it's really pissing off a lot of longtime locals. I've spoken with some of the areas, few Democrats who say, yeah, this sucks, but also just some saner voices who've been there for ages and who say that all these people are moving in with an absolute caricature in their minds of what Idaho is. And you get enough of them clustered around these insane plots for power, and it does actually start to move the needle in favor of some weird actions like what was being plotted here
0: okay i i have an idea fever dreams pod is locating to idaho for at least a month
1: (laughs) that sounds good we can start our own party we can have some kind of commune set up and if we put enough people in precinct races we should be able to take over maybe the local green party
0: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions.
2: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.